0: York in 1964 when Harold was there and my dad had a meeting and Harold said come on Richard let's go to Radio City Music Hall and see Mary Poppins so we did that and I loved the picture but more than that I loved Harold's reaction to it he was the kid he was the enthusiastic fan of that movie right from the start
1: Out of the silver shadows and into the klieg Lights of Movieland comes Nitrateville Radio. This is Michael Gebbert in Chicago with Nitrateville Radio, the podcast that talks to people doing cool stuff in the world of vintage film. Brought to you by Nitrateville.com, the discussion site for movies from the vintage era all around the world. The Men Who Saved the Movies In an extra-long episode loaded with rare film stories, I talk with Richard Simonton about the hidden history of film preservation in the 60s and 70s, and collector and silent film accompanist John Marsalis about finding and releasing lost Lon Chaney films and more. Avoid the penalty and the shock of missing out on future episodes of this podcast while the city sleeps. Subscribe at the podcast app of your choice, and if you can, leave us a rating and a review at Apple Podcasts. And if you don't like it, tell it to the Marines. Previously on Nitreville Radio.
2: Richard Simonton is another unsung hero of film preservation. He was involved uh, with helping... Ah, uh, take care of and preserve uh, a lot of the the Harold Lloyd films for for Harold Lloyd, and uh, working with the estate. And so he acquired the nitrate negatives and prints of the the Horton Shorts uh, sometime after Harold Lloyd's passing. And seeing that the prints were starting to deteriorate, uh, worked with uh, the AFI, and I think. Uh, possibly the Library of Congress as well to secure funding to have him do the lab work to make safety preservation elements of these films.
1: That, of course, was Ben Modell on Nitrateville Radio about a year ago, talking about the collection of Edward Everett Horton's silent comedy shorts that he released last year. And it was the first time I had ever heard of this episode's first guest, Richard Simonton, who turns out to be one of the people who saved our film heritage and has tales to tell of stars he knew like Harold Lloyd and preservationists like David Shepard and Prince being rescued at the last minute from being dumped in the ocean. So I'm pleased to welcome film preservationist and retired Disney Imagineer Richard Simonton. We spoke from his home in Florida, and I started by asking, so it all began because your father knew Harold Lloyd?
0: Well, yeah, they were best friends from 1955 on, I think and had lunch together every week and traveled a lot and stuff.
1: How did that come about?
0: <laughs> they both had poodles, <laughs> Took their poodles to the same veterinarian. Phil Olson on Santa Monica Boulevard, across the street from the pink pussy cat, uh, which was not about cats. <laughs> and, yes. Uh, you know, really the <clears throat> that's the best thing that happened to me because, uh, you know, I I got to work very closely with Harold and know him really well, and and continue working on his films and his still photos uh, after he died. And now, uh, all these years later, I'm still working on his still photos, posting one or two a day on Sue Lloyd's Facebook Carol Lloyd page. That's a nice uh, retirement activity. Okay. So,
1: do you just have like boxes and boxes, or is there an archive?
0: There, there's a huge, huge collection. I mean, uh, I got everything from from Harold. Uh, several years before he died, he gave me access to the eight by ten negatives, which were stored in the in the kennel uh, at his estate, Greenacres. They were scattered all over, and somebody had been plowing through all this stuff and just throwing everything all over the place. I started taking them home and printing them, uh, then uh, come back a, a week later and sit down with Harold and a couple of his other young friends, and uh, he'd look at the pictures and talk about them. I only wish we had a tape recorder going, but it uh, it kind of uh, pushed him beyond the the stock stories. We, we got used to hearing him tell the same stories wherever he was sure. interviewed. This made him think, and and it was really wonderful insights into into his uh, days when he was making the films. He died in early seventy one, and all of that stuff was stored and eventually archived properly. While it was stored in Hollywood, I had access to a you know, vast amount of of prints to scan. But then you know, we we took all of that over the academy, and they, uh, stored, storing it properly and, and archiving it properly, but I was able to go about eight years ago. I guess was the last time, and to the academy and pull things to scan. And uh, that was when I got some wonderful scans of the one-reelers. Harold's father had kept scrapbooks of everything, and the the collection of Stills from his early one-reelers, his pre-Herold glasses character, uh, and even his pre-Lonesome Luke character, uh, are, are photo-documented in those books. Uh, so I <clears throat> sneak some of those in, posting on the page. And I wish I could get back and do some more scanning. I'm, you know, it's a big advantage over every other movie star fan page, I think, because uh, you know this is thousands of pictures. And uh, you know, in beautiful quality, and uh, it's very sad that Buster Keaton doesn't have that. And they do wonderful things attributing to him, but they don't have this collection. And uh, in addition to that, Harold was a photographer, stereo, Kodachrome stereo slides from the late '40s on, and there are over two hundred thousand slides in his collection. And and those I do scan here in Florida. The Academy sends boxes of those, and uh, I work them in too occasionally on the on the fan page uh, because it's a wonderful window into in his life at Greenacres, a fabulous estate in Beverly Hills, and 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 his travels, and his family, and his Suzanne growing up as uh, she's his granddaughter, but uh, but he was daddy to her and. And so it was that kind of relationship. She grew up uh, in their house and uh, has spent her life, I think, promoting Harold. Right. Well, I was just thinking when when we started showing Harold's films in our home theater about 1962, I would get all enthusiastic about them and tell my friends, you know, this wonderful Harold Lloyd film and, and uh, get so excited and i'd get blank stares from everybody nobody knew who harold lloyd was nobody under 50 or 60 at least and it was very discouraging suzanne has done so much uh since she sort of took the reins uh, to promote him and he's much much better known now than he was then he's one of the happiest movie stars yeah and his effect is still very powerful.
1: I remember when, uh, when the, the DVDs came out, my kids were maybe like eight and five or something like that, and mm-hmm. I showed them uh, Safety Last and the Kid Brother, and you know, had a couple of their friends over. Of course, they didn't know who he was, but I mean it's pretty soon into the film i mean they're just like leaping on the couch they're so excited you know it's like oh my god no you know that kind of thing mm-hmm. and uh i mean it just it just proved how beautifully well-constructed his best movies are that, uh, you know, I I don't think they've ever reacted to anything else as much as they love Keaton and Chaplin and anybody else. I don't think anything else has ever just had them at the end of a string quite like uh, Lloyd's films did.
0: I know that reaction. My I, I forced them on the, on my grandson when he was only three years old or so and couldn't read. And he would narrate them for me. He would tell me what Harold was thinking. And he was usually right. And I thought that was amazing.
1: Yeah. Um. So tell me, I mean, like, what all are the photos? I mean, you have quite a, a range of them on the Facebook page.
0: Yeah, it's quite an assortment. And uh, Sue and I believe these shouldn't be hoarded. At, uh, we encourage anybody to share them that wants to. Because they were just, just sitting sitting in boxes and not being enjoyed and I hope they are now uh we seem to get pretty good response to a lot of them uh but I mix up the the traditional production stills with some behind the scenes stuff and some of his uh lifestyle things uh his color stereo slides so you can you can see Harold Harold's life and and his career, I, there seems to be quite a following of people who sort of claim him as, as very special in their lives, especially women. If you look at the, some of the comments, a lot of women are very much in love with him. <laughs> That's amazing because he's he's a comic character. Of course, he's not a misfit like some of them, uh, but uh, he never really thought of himself as a handsome leading man. It's wonderful to see the reaction these bring. I don't know if that answered your question,
1: well, I'm just kind of curious about like the the subjects of his photos. I mean we know we know that he experimented with three d and that he took a lot of i guess you'd call them pin up pictures Because uh, mm-hmm. they're they're too innocent to to apply the usual words that we would use today. I don't know what else what other kinds of things did he Take pictures of.
0: He traveled a lot. Unfortunately, some of those scenes that he captured in his camera are, haven't changed today. I mean, uh, his pictures of the period of the pyramids—you uh, know—it doesn't matter that he took those pictures all those years ago. Cause, right. Uh, it's the same thing. But uh, occasionally, we get a little bit of uh, more personal experience in them. But there's a vast amount of those, and uh, which I think are of less interest. But then there'll be pictures of him traveling with uh, his wife Mildred and son Harold Jr. and uh, Harold and Mildred each are carrying a poodle all through France. <laughs> uh, I don't know why, but <laughs> they just couldn't go anywhere without them. Yeah. So you know, and of course, all all the pictures around his home there are dogs, and every one of those. The production photos are just what you'd expect of, of any any old movie. Uh, scenes from the films, scenes behind the scenes. But, but one great benefit of them is that we see so much that landed on the cutting room floor. A feature film from the from the twenties will have what looks like you know several reels of. Situations and things that they considered dead-end streets or, or going in the wrong direction or something, and had to, you know, just toss out a lot of wonderful stuff. Uh, some of it <clears throat> based on on the previews. They'd, they'd take it that far and still be learning about what worked and what fit, and what paced properly. They put an awful lot into into that. And it's amazing. If, if that footage survived, we'd have. Well, I'm glad it doesn't, really. <laughs> Do you know
1: of any examples of that? Do you, can you think of any offhand?
0: Well, in the movie Speedy, in the middle of the picture, there's a street fight. And what you see in the final film is only maybe the first third of it, because obviously somebody said, you know, this is much too much here. We need to save something for the for the big chase at the end. And we're we're, we're taking this to an extreme. So they came to a gag where a Chinese laundryman comes out and joins the fight with a uh, an iron in his hand, a hot iron, steaming iron, <laughs> and burns everybody in the pants, uh, all the bad guys. According to the previews, that got such a response that they figured that was a good place to fade out. The Kid Brother, are you familiar with that one? Oh, yeah. Yeah, that's that's my favorite. and that was my dad's favorite. Harold didn't, didn't think it was his favorite hmm. until my dad changed his mind because <laughs> it, it hadn't done as well as he hoped at, at the box office. My theory there is that naming it the kid brother is what killed it. You know, it sounds like some old guy with some obnoxious little kid. Well, Kaplan had done that better, I'm sure. Right. But anyway, uh, the initial, uh, scenes were were directed by lewis milestone and if you recall the laundry scene where uh, the kite carries away the the clothes that are drying in the final film it makes a lot of sense but under lewis milestone it it has a much longer uh more tiresome journey and it shows Harold on top of the barn on on ty- on raveling this from the weather vane and to get up to the top of the barn he had to rig a horse and a rope and a pulley and slap the horse so that he would horse would pull him up to the top of the barn and all you know just gag upon gag upon gag it's just like some of the movies today i think the action movies that i think are just a long succession of of challenges right? until and, and I, for one, don't much care anymore. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. So Louis Milestone didn't last long, but he, you know, it wasn't the end of him because he won a couple Academy Awards. Right. Right after that. Yeah, it
1: does sound a bit belabored compared to how the film works overall.
0: And that's true of all the films. Uh, they threw out a lot of the freshmen and essentially started over was that after they'd shot quite a bit and hot water and girl shy. There are all these, all these extra scenes. Now,
1: what was he like uh, when you knew him, which I guess would mostly be the sixties.
0: He was, he was fun and the nicest person I've ever met. I would watch him coming into a room full of people. He wouldn't just bask in the glow of being a celebrity. He, he would make everybody feel important somehow and like he was glad to see them and he he loved children he loved dogs he loved people and it just couldn't have been nicer i have wonderful memories like being in new york in 1964 when harold was there and my dad had a meeting and harold said come on richard let's go to radio city music hall and see mary poppins so we did that and I loved the picture, but more than that, I loved Harold's reaction to it. He was the kid. He was the enthusiastic fan of that movie right from the start. Of course, he already liked Dick Van Dyke, Right. but he, uh, he, he was just on the edge of his seat and he was grinning through the whole thing. And that was, that was the best show I could have had. Yeah. That was wonderful. On that same trip, he was on the Tonight Show with Johnny Carson there in New York, and I got to sit in the audience. I, I think Johnny Carson didn't really know who he was, and Harold had, had only had the time to grab a trailer for one of his compilations, which they showed. And suddenly, Johnny Carson got all excited, but he you know, hadn't left time really to to get to know him and said, you must come back and you must get into this. And our and the audience loved it and everything. So, you know, that's another example of people discovering him.
1: So he felt that he had been forgotten by that point. I mean, I, he made movies, but through the through the talkie era, but kind of more and more attenuated from one to the next, uh, you know, and he did just sort of fade away, I guess. Um but he, then he got into the, doing the compilation films at some point in the 60s. Um, mm-hmm. Tell me about that phase.
0: He started that in the 50s. Okay. And I think by the late 40s, he launched preservation effort. Uh, as he realized he was losing these things. And he also felt, he told me that he made these compilation films to protect these, his copyrights. Sure. He believed erroneously that by using this footage, he uh, was protecting the copyrights on his features. Uh, But he he wasn't. He was only copywriting the new version of it. He was such a a modest, self-effacing person on one hand, and yet he believed in his films and wanted them seen. In 1957, he he had Walter Scharf do this fabulous score for the freshman. And Harold tried releasing it then, but didn't have much success. And, and so in 1963, he put it in a compilation called uh, Harold Lloyd's Funny Side of Life. And the year before was Harold Lloyd's World of Comedy. And to the people who saw those, uh, you know, he was suddenly their their hero. But Sadly, they weren't well distributed, and he tried to sell them to TV, but he couldn't get a price for them that he thought was fair. People say that he, he was very protective and hoarding and, and didn't want his film seen. That's not true at all. He he made several other efforts, too, to, to bring these out. In 1949, he re-released uh, Movie Crazy from 1932, Uh, And it, you know, had a moderate run, but what hurt me was when he would say things like, you know, the the audience kind of changed for the kind of films that we made. Well, my opinion is that the films changed when he went to sound. Right. Uh, His character became stupid. He he wasn't clever anymore. Even in movie crazy was it's wonderful, funny scenes. Uh, there's still no reason why Constance Cummings should have fallen in love with him. <laughs> but uh, anyway, the talkie that I like is uh, Professor Beware in 1938, which is essentially some of his early 2 reelers remade, spliced together, and you know, it was all new, beautifully photographed, and presented. Uh, but by then, I think he'd lost his audience right, and couldn't get it back that easily
1: he was interested in preserving his films from a pretty, well, I mean, obviously just the fact that he kept everything himself, uh, put him ahead of almost every other star, except maybe Chaplin. And I, and Mm -hmm. I guess Mary Pickford might be another one, but relatively few, certainly, uh, that, you know, had the foresight to see that they should be taking an active role in saving their own films.
0: He didn't, uh, take possession of his Al Roach films until the late 1930s, and he didn't get everything. Uh, He did in some form or another, except for some of the one reelers that were not there anymore. For example, he got a very nice print of Safety Last, but no negative on that. Others, he was more fortunate. He'd have, uh, like on Get Out and Get Under, a 2 reeler he had. The domestic original negative and the foreign original negative, and a print. Same with Grandma's Boy and and some of the others. Others makes me shudder when I think of it. But there's some films that, if he hadn't saved them, and if he if if there hadn't been one print for him to save, they wouldn't be here today. And Safety Last is one that, to my knowledge, doesn't exist in any other original element except Harold's print hmm. which was uh used for the for the, the blu-ray right others like uh Grosje, he had had negative and positive and the freshman he had uh the original work print and uh foreign negative which is an original negative but you know, a slightly different camera angle the The restoration that Bob Gitt did for the freshman for UCLA is really spectacular. Uh, if you've seen the Blu-ray, sure. And and, uh, and he used a lot of footage from the uh, from the, the fine grain I had made from the original, foreign negative. And he did the same thing with Speedy. I had preserved what there was that was still savable of the original negative. Harold also had the original work print, and and between those two elements, Bob was able to make it look, you know, almost like new again. It's really phenomenal. Kid Brother, he had a perfect original negative of that, but he didn't preserve it. I preserved it, and it was still perfect. You know, my fine grain was used for the Criterion Blu-ray, but then they kind of messed up with the timing of it. But you know, it's still wonderful.
1: Timing, you mean it? it's too dark or something?
0: It's too light. It's, it's too, light. too bright, way too bright and gray. And it doesn't have the snap to it that it did when we were looking at the elements in the studio out there.
3: Uh,
0: and maybe I shouldn't air my grievance, but <laughs> I waited 50 years for that to come out. <sighs> right. Uh,
3: hmm, looks pretty anyway,
0: good to me,
1: um, but... You know, I don't have yeah. I don't have anything to compare it to. So what do I know?
0: Well, nobody's complained. Everybody says it looks fabulous, and it does. It's sharp and steady. All
1: right. Well, let's talk about when you enter the picture as a preservationist, or however you describe yourself. Um, when when did that happen?
0: Because we had a home theater, a nice one, sixty three seats with, a you know, world's well, pipe organ that my dad. Put in four accompanying silent movies, so I inherited some of this passion from him, I guess. Uh, so I grew up with movies that way, and just couldn't get enough. Ever and you know more and more interested, and finally, uh, my brother and I added three more projectors, so we had a pair of 16 millimeter and a pair of 35s in that place, and uh, started uh, somehow at- attracting uh, interesting people to, to to come use the facility with us uh, I knew I wanted to get into uh, making preservation elements you know printing new elements from the nitrates and uh, David Shepard was a friend he was the head of the archival uh, effort for the American Film Institute then, which was all kind of fledgling. He said, you know, that I, I shouldn't expect to just go in and start doing this without, you know, lots and lots of knowledge and experience. But I took, a I got a printer and I took an, A negative for one of the Edward Everett Horton comedies, which are out on DVD now that Ben Modell did. Uh, And I ran it through my printer in the very first piece of film. I showed to David Shepard and he said, that's fabulous. Uh, And he started sending me films to preserve. Uh, Of course, I didn't know all I needed to know, but I did some good work and then some better work. I developed a printer that could handle any degree of shrinkage without losing sharpness. And uh, that's where I did my best work.
1: So what kind of films was he sending you?
0: Well, a lot of them <clears throat> he was authorizing, but I already had possession of them. Oh. In uh, 1971, late 71 and early 72, Paramount was threatening to throw their nitrate, all the nitrate prints of the films they'd sold to Universal. Throw them, throw them into the ocean, because they couldn't get anybody to take them, and they just had to get get them out of there. They needed the vault space. A friend of mine, uh, Bob Epstein at UCLA, had already started collecting nitrate and didn't have any place to store it anyway. Uh, he was afraid that that was going to get him into trouble. They came to me and said, "We can get all these studio prints from Paramount, but we have no place to store them. But if you, meeting me, would pay the storage on them. Uh, we could have them, and you could have access to to running them. And that was, you know, just a dream come true. This is something that couldn't have happened more than once in a, in uh, in the universe. I think <laughs> yeah. that happened to me. So while we were pulling the prints out of the vaults, and there were about eight hundred nitrate studio prints of the of the Universal Paramounts and we were hauling them in my mother's station wagon and a UCLA van down to the vaults I'd rented. I was taking an inventory and came across a lot of films that weren't on the list anywhere, and there were wonderful things, a lot of Lasky feature plays from the teens.
3: Um,
0: The earliest feature film there was 1914 um, called Circus Man with Theodore Roberts, just wonderful stuff from the from the 20s Ben Modell's working on one now called you'd be surprised with Raymond Griffith right that's where that came from well paramount said no no you can't have these these you you can only have the universal ones where we've cleared the the rights and sold the rights and and you know you get, you get to have those prints but I guess that Bob Epstein or somebody said well you know, these have got to be preserved too. And they said, all right, well, you can, and I guess David Shepard got involved. You can take them, but they'll go to the Library of Congress, not to UCLA. Well, I, At that time, I was custodian of the nitrate vaults that the Academy had. I put all those, that was about 200 more prints in the Academy vaults. And they were there for a long time before they finally went back east And David Shepard and Larry Carr at at Library of Congress started hiring me to do preservation elements on these things. Some of them were going, you know, deteriorating. And uh, surprisingly, how how few those early Lasky features looked glorious. They're just beautiful, beautiful things. I'm rambling. I'm sorry. No, that's all
1: right. That's what this podcast is all about.
0: Okay. My life is all about reminiscing these
1: days. (laughs) (laughs) So how did you get, um, you were working for the Academy. Did that just come about because you were known at that point as someone who made print or whatever, you know, copy, copy rare material.
0: That was through David Shepard. Again, I mean, he, he did so much to get me launched into, into this. And he needed the help because he was essentially a one-man operation. <clears throat> uh, there were a couple others in Washington, D.C., but nobody on the West Coast. And they appointed me their West Coast liaison, unpaid. And I was unpaid for the academy <laughs> when, when David said, uh, you know, uh, you can you take charge of the Academy vaults and you can take all those films home and run them and you can, because that's good for them. And, you know, you go, go through the wine through and help preserve this stuff. that was a good place to put all these other Paramount films in with collections like the Lois Weber collection and the William S. Hart collection and you know, just wonderful, wonderful stuff. If you've seen the movie Hugo, it's about George Mm -hmm. Melies and i think they say in it that there are very few of his films that survived well in those academy vaults i had nobody seemed to care but i had over 100 original negatives of his films because uh, when he made films in france he also made a second negative which went to texas to the star film company tremendous treasures in the in those vaults and nobody paying any attention to them and there'd been an earthquake in 1971 and when i first went in the vaults i i had to practically climb over all the film that was on the floor and cans opened and spilled and everything nobody had done anything so all this came together i had to work nights as a projectionist to pay the rent on the vaults that uh ucla was using for the universal Paramount, but uh I got to officially take them home and show them because they, <laughs> afraid, of, afraid of getting into trouble, they designated our home theater as an extension of UCLA. <laughs> and they couldn't run nitrate there. They couldn't run nitrate anywhere really uh, at the time, except I ran it. it, didn't burn the house down, but we ran it very carefully. And for several years there, I uh, run, you know, at least 200 nitrate prints a year, probably more. Oh, it was so exciting. <laughs> and we met a lot of famous people that way. You know, I could spend the next three hours listing celebrities that uh, came to watch their films. Uh, not just stars, but several cameramen. And, uh, you know, the biggest names. If I may, I'd like to tell you one little coincidence sure. story. Uh, Hal Moore photographed uh, some wonderful films at two Academy Awards and uh, he and his wife, Evelyn Venable came over to see Death Takes a Holiday Frederick March film that she was in and afterwards uh, Hal Hal said, wasn't she beautiful and she's sitting right there and glares at him and (laughs) he said, "Uh, I mean isn't she beautiful? (laughs) But they were the nicest, nicest people, and uh, we were talking, and and I said I was, uh, you know, restoring some Harold uh, Lloyd early Harold Lloyd films, or preserving them. I mean, and he said, "Oh, I directed a Harold Lloyd one-reeler," and I didn't know that, so I said, "What?" And he said, well, "I don't remember the title, but uh, there's a antique shop and." And Harold distributes notes all over the town saying the one marked XX contains $10,000. And then he put XX on all the items in the antique shop. (laughs) All these people flood in and and buy them. And uh, I said, well, wait right here. Just wait right here. I'll be back in just a minute. And I, I ran into my bedroom and returned with a can of nitrate film, which, of course, is always kept in the bedroom. (laughs) And, uh, I said, this is the film that was in the camera. When you shot the movie, it's called the big idea, 1917. And if you look on internet movie database, you see, he's credited as the photographer, the director and the writer of that film. And, you know, that was just for me to happen to have that particular film at hand like that, uh, I'm sorry, I just had to share that story.
1: Yeah, no, that's great. Well, how did those people, I mean, you know, retired celebrities, I guess you'd say, uh how did they find out about, you know, that you were showing these films? I mean, how did all that come about?
0: Through people like Bob Burchard and David Caracchetti, mostly. I don't know if you're familiar with their names. I that,
1: yeah, I knew I knew Bob a little online.
0: He knew a lot of these people and uh and encountered them. Uh he was uh, very much involved in Cinecon and I guess its president uh, right. until his death several years ago David Caracchetti was just a very enthusiastic movie buff he wrote a, a book about Mitchell Lyson Lyson was alive to do the book and uh, he brought over Edith Head and, and some of the other costume people Helen Rose and Walter Plunkett one night and I particularly like the the cinematographers uh, uh, George Folsey and you know, Hal Moore uh, that I mentioned, and uh, no, let's see. Well, anyway, several of them. They they just somehow this got around through them and others that, uh, that these things were available. And Jack Oki was one. He uh, and David Carricketti. That you know, if you ever want to see any of your old films, I have a friend uh, with a home theater that has access to all the prints. So he became a regular coming over to watch his movies. And he was That's wonderful. It. Myrna Loy, Olivia the Haviland. I, I don't know, long, long list, even Lawrence, Olivier. Huh. This got to be really well known. And there was a lot of trouble about that time, the FBI going after film pirates collectors they called them pirates and I was really afraid you know that I was collecting films and I had all these things and one time I was working on a uh, thing for Myrna Loy to be shown uh, at the Academy Awards a compilation of her films so I had about 30 of her films there there were studio prints from MGM and others and I was just praying that the FBI would raid me and have to give it all back and leave me alone again. Well they <laughs> never did bother me for some reason. I don't know why. Well, I mean oh, if
1: if your films had come through a deal between the studios and an archive, um weren't you pretty much legit in their eyes?
0: Uh he, yes and no. Uh I don't I don't know. I mean there's still a lot of prints lying around that <laughs> yeah that belonged to the house
1: now I imagine they they would have looked at them as guilty until proven innocent
0: yeah I think so that's the way they were with David Shepard yeah they hauled his all of his films away and had to give them back meantime they've damaged a lot of them
1: right I, I didn't know about that when did that happen
0: well early 70s I guess okay uh, my good friend Woody Wise I had trouble with them I don't know. This whole thing was so, so lucky for me, and it was very good because these, these people appreciated it. They, they love seeing these things again. Some of them were were doing books or trying to do books, you know, or just wanted to remember. I mentioned the Myrna Loy. One night, uh, I said, you know, I, I don't like the review I read of Parnell with Clark Gable, who said it, who says it's a real turkey. I mean, he, the reviewer said that. And she said, Well, I, I kind of like that movie. I'd like to see it again. And I said, Well, I can get a studio print from MGM. And she said, Oh, don't bother. I'll go get it. So she drove to MGM, got the print, and brought it over, and we watched it. <laughs> it was a good movie.
1: Yeah. Was that one that just didn't go to TV because its reputation was so bad?
0: I don't know. Did it not go to TV?
1: I don't know. I mean, I, I can't remember yeah. ever seeing it turn up anywhere. It probably plays TCM now. But Yeah. Now, somewhere along the way, I mean, you talked about having a night job as a projectionist. Uh, I don't know, did you have a day job (laughs) to help make all this happen, or how'd that work? Well, the
0: day day job was the film preservation. Okay. Uh, The night job of projectionist was difficult when I was wanting to show films at home, too. So I had to break it up, but uh, you know I needed for to pay those vault rents. It uh, was five hundred dollars a month, and that was a lot of money to me. Uh, and I didn't have any other income except uh, through the uh, National Endowment for the Arts fund for film preservation, which is administered by AFI. Okay. And then sometimes I'd work directly for library of Congress, but they didn't have a lot of money. Then there was no great effort, organized effort to preserve films then and no, no funding really that uh, I had, I'd have six months out of of a year when I was uh, making a pretty good living. And, and then the money would run out and I'd have to wait until the next fiscal year. Right. Uh, (laughs) We also did a lot of film scoring there with the Wurlitzer. Okay. Uh, Harold uh, wanted pipe organ scores for all of his films. People sneer at them now, look down their nose at it, but that was authentic. And Gaylord Carter had had been had got his his job at the Million Dollar Theater on Broadway in Los Angeles because of Harold Lloyd recommended recommending him to Sid Grauman. So Harold and Gaylord worked together and. I recorded all that stuff. That was fun. They'd look at the films and laugh so much.
1: Now, you were also, you were an Imagineer for Disney at some point. When did that happen?
0: That was uh, 1980, September of 1980 is when I started there. started here in Florida because I was trying to raise a family and I wanted a steady income. Things had kind of wound down out there for me because UCLA got organized and they got funded. After several years, I wasn't paying the rent anymore, which was fine. Right. <laughs> but then, uh, you know, I was kind of an outcast then because it embarrassed them to have it known that, that that they'd been having to work that way instead of being able to do it on their own. And there's, there's still some out there believe that my father paid the rent. Well, he never did. That's not true. He did one time. And he really complained about it. I didn't ask him again. Yeah, he had plenty of money, but, you know, that was my deal. Anyway, I'm airing my grievances.
1: All right, so there kind of came the moment when film preservation finally professionalized and didn't depend on on all you clever fellows like David Shepard and you finding ways by hook or crook to do it on your own.
0: Yeah, David had... It was not with AFI, and I think it was with the Directors Guild then. Suddenly, there's just so much official interest in this and you know, reputations to, to worry about. Uh, it was not the, not, I don't know what you say, grassroots effort or something that we right. Bob Birchard wrote a wonderful article in the Journal for the Association of Moving Image Archivists a number of years ago, something about Nitrate Nellies and something Buccaneers. (laughs) It it tells the whole story of the UCLA archives, including up to the point where I join in on about halfway through the article. He said, if it hadn't been for me, it might never have happened. Uh, And then I was the hero of the UCLA archives story. Well, some people take exception to that. They think that's a little too much. (laughs) I mean, really, there was just, it was, you know, they, there just was no no way to 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 move this forward until they finally got it uh, got it going.
1: All right, so yeah, so Disney, you went to work for Disney.
0: That was a year before Epcot opened their second theme park here in Florida. I was in a little animation group. i I was the sound department for the animation group because uh, there was only like six people in addition to to working that department. Uh, I was part of the opening team to go around to the attractions and and get them all regulated the audio portions primarily and i went I did that up until six six years ago in uh, in shanghai see I, I I opened five Disney theme parks plus the resort in Hawaii. I did Hong Kong and Shanghai, and then three others here. And that was kind of a dream come true, because in the mid-1950s, watching Mickey Mouse Club and the Disneyland TV show, I just thought, that's for me. And I eventually got there.
1: Well, it's interesting. I mean, you know, one of the first places that I remember seeing a lot of uh, really early films presented in a, you know, in an early film way, even down to, like, mutoscopes and things like that was there on main street in disneyland when i went Mm -hmm. in the early 70s as a kid um so you know in in their own way disney kind of served this idea of i don't know continuity with film
0: history do you remember when the uh, main street cinema actually ran films
1: Oh yeah, yeah no. That's when I yeah. when I saw it as a as a little kid. Yeah, they were showing you know short films. Uh, I don't know on a loop or however they did it.
0: I don't recall what they had initially, uh, but you know just samples of old stuff, some slapstick and some whatever. Yeah. Uh, but then I think it was nineteen seventy eight or so. Somebody got to me and said, uh, Disney wants some films for the Main Street Cinema and uh, you know, they want some new stuff or they need their negatives to worn out. and
1: <laughs> They need some they new need. old
0: stuff. Yeah, uh, I made a presentation to them and, and did, uh, did the first batch of those, never did a second batch because eventually turned it into just another shop. I got a uh, David Shepard gave me a 1916 print of Twenty Thousand Leagues Under the Sea, oh, which had been the print that Universal had given Disney when Disney bought the rights to remake it, and uh, it was, you know, 35 nitrate made in the 40s or something, not not real old, and I made a one reel version of that for Main Street Cinema, and I put a Harold Lloyd one reeler in there uh, called Spring Fever. And I don't remember now what the others were. Oh, yeah, I put in a, a Disney cartoon called Puss in Boots from like 1923 or something. So I had fun doing that. And then that kind of opened the door for me to to join Disney. I, when that was going well, I, I said, I'd really love to work for this company. And they said, well, the opportunities are in Florida now because we're building a second theme park. So that's what I did. Well,
1: let's talk about, uh, you know, one of the things, I mean, certainly where I first heard of your name was from Ben Modell in regards to the Edward Everett Horton collection. Um, mm-hmm. Tell me about that. I mean, that was something I had no idea even existed. And there it turned out that you had carefully preserved it many years before.
0: I didn't know they existed either until just in the last couple of years of Harold's life. And he was starting to. Uh, get us involved. Well, it was Rich Carell and Dave Knoll that were the the two that were taking care of his film collection. A lot of rewinding and and you know just maintenance of it. Uh, but then we started talking about preservation. And meanwhile, I was working on still photos because I saw that niche was available. Anyway, after Harold died, the estate through through Rich Carell said, you know, we don't want these Horton films they're starting to decompose and they take up a lot of space negatives and prints and we don't have the money to preserve them and you know we don't want them lost but we we're not going to do anything with them so they gave them to me and then I preserved them on my own I asked Library of Congress if I preserved them if they if they would reimburse me the expense and they did so what nearly half a century later Ben Modell finds these things right in the Library of Congress, and uh, I know that a number of years ago, you know, I talked to Sue about adding some of these to some of the Lloyd releases, and I had prints of three of them that I'd made for myself, which i given to her now, but she never, Criterion turned them down. Anyway, that's how they got preserved, and uh, Ben find- found these things and didn't know I'd had anything to do with it. He thought that some of them were incomplete, and then I explained to him, no, some were a mixture of negative and positive to get a complete film. And he's, then he looked again and saw that they fit together and was able to do all eight of them. And he did a fantastic job, whoever he got to to do the the transfers on those things. They, looked, they really looked like new, even the decomposed sections, which I left in because I didn't want to jump in the action.
1: No, they look really great, and I mean, that's that's another thing that's really nice about them is that they were produced on a high level to begin with.
0: Very high.
1: All right, well, are there other things that you worked on that I don't even know to ask about?
0: Lots and lots of things. Uh, Henry King was a particularly good friend. He was a neighbor lived just around the corner from us and was still flying his own twin-engine plane when he was in his 90s till his wife finally made him stop. <laughs> yeah. Uh, because he didn't want to be up there, if anything happened to him. Uh, but he was ninety-two or ninety-three then, and I think he lived in ninety-six. Uh, but just a fascinating guy and uh, nicest. All these people were so nice. Are Hollywood people that nice anymore? Are there any real I don't know. Hollywood people? I don't know.
1: Yeah, must not have crossed but, paths uh, with like John Ford, though. <laughs> if you remember yeah, well, them all yeah. as being nice. Yeah,
0: well, I guess he could be. I mean, it comes across in his movies, the niceness does. Yeah. If not in person. Right. (laughs) But for Henry King, we showed uh, David. um, Tallible David. Tallable David.
1: Yeah, I just watched that recently, uh, David Shepard's DVD. And, you know, it really drove home uh, how much better a lot of the transfer work has gotten in terms of image stabilization and things like that I'd love to see somebody take a new crack at that Uh, because I know David loved the film and and, you know so that was a real labor of love for him
0: he tried to shuffle the two decks together a a nitrate print a beat up nitrate print that came from Columbia because they'd used some of that footage in, in a movie called The tingler
1: oh right yeah
0: and uh, a safety print from the museum of modern art and of course they you know just cutting back and forth between those i can't imagine to look very good at all david Shepard also had a print of the skull of dallas from
3: 1926.
0: yeah magnificent film and we had a big party with the winning of barbara Worth with ronald coleman and gary cooper and zoma Banky. uh francis golden attended and and uh, it was written up in variety sort of a re premiere of that with Gaylord Carter at the organ. But Henry King was just, you know, one of those really, really nice people. And he made so many wonderful films.
1: Anyone else besides King that you remember in particular?
0: Well, the the other King, King Vidor. Okay. And Colleen Moore. Yeah. Uh, They were together. First time I met them, uh, they were neighbors was thinking over the weekend, I should maybe list some of these people so they'd be fresh in my mind. But I mentioned some of them. There was nobody that I I got a, a bad vibe from. There, everybody. I, my mother kept a list of all these, and you know she had Irene Dunn over for tea one day. If we have an hour or two sometime. I'll read the list to you if I can. You. <laughs> but you know it was, this is just wonderful because. It all it all came together so miraculously, and you know I don't remember doing anything to precipitate this, but you know somehow unseen forces made it all happen. And you know that's not just for my benefit. I mean, an awful lot of films got saved. Uh, One of the films that I found in the vaults at Paramount was a Technicolor print of Redskin, a late Technicolor silent western. So that's been preserved from that and the fatty arbuckle feature the, uh, and uh, what's it called the roundup yeah that came from from there bob birchard though and david caracetti deserve so much credit because they were outgoing and they would approach these people and you know, bring us all together and these are all things that needed to be found and i was lucky to be one of them that did it
1: As you may have guessed, the music for this segment came from Ben Modell's scores for his release of the Edward Everett Horton shorts produced by Harold Lloyd. If you don't have that set, which just won Best Rediscovery of a Forgotten Film in the DVD Awards at the Cinema Ritrovato in Bologna, the link for it will be in the show post at nitrateville.com. Now, my next guest is John Marsalis, one of today's key silent film collectors. I wonder how I should introduce him.
2: You there, sitting at the keyboard, you have something to say? Uh, There are two releases I'm working on that John Marsalis actually has produced and scored for video. Um, One is a second volume of early Lon Chaney material, and that'll be a two-disc set. And there are a couple of features that he had scored uh, for Cinecon Online, And so those will come out at some point later in the year as a fifth volume of Accidentally Preserved. That's the Modellitzer, a Ben Modell
1: simulator that makes producing podcasts even easier. Just kidding. That was the real him on Nitrateville Radio earlier this year, talking about two upcoming releases from my next guest, film collector, silent film accompanist, Lon Chaney superfan, PhD in genetics and toxicology, and returning Nitrateville Radio guest, John Marsalis. welcome, John. Happy to be here. I don't remember if we got into this uh, the last time we did one of these, but uh, Whylon Cheney, as opposed to like being hot for Yvonne Mouchakin or Paul Negri or a million other people, why Lon well, Cheney.
4: Well, you know, I I, I joke that um, that you know my my other one of my big passions that I have a huge collection on is ronald coleman and i joke that i'm really into actors that work in both the silent and sound eras whose last name begin with the letter c um but (laughs) gary cooper yeah gary cooper yeah um but you know i think the real reason is that you know i like many people of my generation i began reading famous monsters of film land at a very early age you know i think i was like 10 in fact, I. I, I was buying, like, issue number 1415 at the newsstand. Right. <laughs> um, so, and I've since acquired all the others, so I have a complete set. <laughs> um, and they used to do this, um, I mean, l- l- lack of scholarship aside, on, uh, on <laughs> Forey Ackerman, uh, who he, he was very influential, but often got the details kind of wrong. Right. Um, he... Uh, but he always did a series called "Lon Chaney Shall Not Die," and uh, you know every every month, every issue he would have a picture that would be um, you know some picture of Lon Chaney, and um, and you know I kind of puzzled. I said you know why can't I see these films? You know I just I became you know it was like it was like the lure of the of the of the unseen. You know if it had been. You know, if it had been Boris Karloff, I would have gone, oh yeah, okay, you know, you go through, you check off, you know, the majority of the films, I mean, there are some lost Karloffs, and say, okay, I'm done with that and moved on. It was just so intriguing that there were so many that I could not see. And so, I kind of, you know, back in college, became almost obsessed with Cheney, um, began to work on the rudiments of what became a book. Um, I started to do a book. It it kind of eventually merged into a website. And, um, that, you know, I mean, I've just been very fascinated with Cheney. But in particular, I'm really interested in the Universal years, the early Universals. Again, because they're so hard to see. You know, you can, you know, I love the later films. I love The Unknown. I love Unholy 3. I love West of Santa Bar, But you see them. You get them. You, you can, I, you know, I have most of them on 16mm film. You can get virtually all of them on video. And it's like, yeah, I've been there, done that. But the Universal stuff is so hard to see, it became sort of like a, a you know, there's about a 100 of them and there's like a 100 mini Holy Grails that, that I tried to track down. And so so that was that was sort of, you know, what kept me going. But I mean, I'm, I'm very interested in Chaney and I'm very interested in his films. And uh, so, you know, between running a website, and I'll put in my plug for, you know, lonchaney.org is a website I created back in the 90s and have run ever since. And um, but but I'm really very passionate about getting this stuff out there so that people can see it.
1: Well, yeah. Let's uh, for the sake of listeners who aren't fully up to speed on all of this, Chaney, of course, became famous for films made in the early '20s at Universal, uh, *Phantom of the Opera* and *Hunchback of Notre Dame*. But before that, I mean, Universal was really just his workplace. It's where he got his start in film and did every kind of thing. He was just a workaday character actor then.
4: Right. I mean, he started the, the, the earliest, his earliest credited credit is, um, you know, from August of uh, 1913. But we know that he was working at Universal as early as the fall of 1912. I mean, there are, you know, he shows up unbilled in, in films from that period um and um and so you know yeah he was just he was just another actor and most of them i would say were not makeup roles you know in in the in the james cagney film man of a thousand faces you know they sort of imply oh yeah he got work because he did these clever makeups you know there's no reason to believe that i mean he he was on the stage earlier i'm sure he had some proficiency in makeup but you look at his most of his early films for which we have where we pictures exist, at least, you know, th- this isn't makeup stuff. It's, uh, you know, his first build film is Poor Jake's Demise. It's a slapstick comedy where, you know, it's kind of, uh, you know, I mean, no no different makeup than what you'd see in any Mac Sennett type film. Uh, you know, but later it becomes more of a character actor. Um, you know, and, and you know, we know him now today. You know, he's best known today probably from *Hunchback of Notre Dame*, *Phantom of the Opera*, which is 1923, 1925, You know, a decade later in his career, and then of course, you know, the some of the more legendary films like *London After Midnight* and *The Blind Bargain*. He gets slapped and laugh clown laugh. The, you know, his clown pictures. Um, I, you know, but he was a he was just a. A guy working in the movies. He was a character actor, and he's a very good character actor, which is why he continued to get work, and uh, and he was very busy at Universal, and you know made about a hundred films at Universal before he really kind of kind of broke out, um, you know, with his own career.
1: Right, and the new set that you're doing, Lon Chaney, Before the Thousand Faces, Volume Two, is five films from that teens period. It was it nineteen fourteen to nineteen seventeen. Um, and you know, one or two have some makeup aspect to them. There's one where he's got all kinds of shaggy hair and beard. Um, but he's, yeah, like you say, he's, he's just a character actor. He's, you know, he's good as a villain in a western piece, he's good in a uh, historical piece. You know, you can just count on him to show up and deliver the goods.
4: Yeah, yeah, the, it, with the new set, actually, four of the five I would describe as non makeup roles. I mean, they're their costume roles, but, um, you know, I mean, in, in, in one, he plays kind of a classic Western villain cowboy. Um, you know, in another, he's just a gangster. Uh, you know, in, a, in another, you know, one of the costume roles, he's kind of a, an, an evil chevalier. Uh, so he's in, you know, kind of medieval costume, but it's, it's not really a makeup, makeup role. Um, another, he's the love interest. I mean, he plays, a, you know, he's a playwright and then only in the the latest of the five, which is The Scarlet Car, um, does he, you know, you're right. I mean, he actually two different sets to make up for that. You know, one is he makes himself up as kind of an older man. And then one is kind of a crazed, you know, wild man type. Um, and uh, so, you know, that 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 is more of a conventional makeup role. But the other four films, you know, he just he's just working.
1: Well, and also in that one, he's it's kind of showcasing that he can play this sort of out there character that, you know, the, the hero, I guess is Franklin Farnham, but uh, right. Ch- Cheney gets the colorful part. Sure. So, yeah. yeah um, so where'd you track all these down?
4: Well, so um, the, the, you know, they come from various sources. The, the two that I would say are the, you know, kind of the, the jewels of the set. Are from the Library of Congress, and that's the Scarlet Car and the Oubliette. The other three are off of 16 millimeter material, uh, kind of the the only surviving 16 millimeter material, uh, but it's the best material out there. Let's get the 35 millimeter out of the way. So the so the Scarlet Car was discovered, you know a nitrate a very beat up nitrate print, was part of a collection that Library of Congress purchased. I want to say in the early 70s, might have even been late 60s. Um, I previewed this stuff, I want to say in 1976 or 77 at Library of Congress. It, it just it sat there and then um, I helped a little bit because in fact they gave me, LOC gave me a credit in the restoration because when I looked at it, it was there was stuff that was out of sequence and there were some missing titles and um i had actually made a 16 millimeter negative of this and sold 16 millimeter collector prints in the 1980s and virtually every version of scarlet car that's popped up on youtube or on video i think Kino might have put it out long long ago on vhs i think sinister cinema might may have put it out i think grapevine had it yeah yeah you know they all derived from that 16 millimeter print which was a nice 16 millimeter print because it was made off of um, four-fifths of it was from nitrate, and one-fifth was from safety. And, um, and so, you know, and that's what's been around. Well, then in the early 2000s, I want to say around 2001 or 2003, I don't remember if there's a date on, the, on the, the end title card of it, um, the uh, Library of Congress decided to do a, a quasi-restoration. Uh, this was pre-digital uh and so they just did their best with you know photochemical put it together all they really did was make a new clean transfer at that point i think three or four of the five reels of nitrate were still around Uh, some of it had gone and they had to go back to the safety so i think reel two was definitely from safety and isn't as sharp and and they they used my notes to kind of put it into the right order and, and that was that was what they did. They didn't attempt to, to bring out the tints. They were still doing black and white um, uh, restorations at that point uh, because color was a lot more expensive. And so, you know, they did that as a restoration. And so what I had access to with the Library of Congress was the 35 millimeter restoration negative. So they scanned that restoration, which itself was from, you know, photochemical from the surviving... Period. So it's very good, but it's not. It's not like the, of the 4K from uh, nitrate that I'll talk about in a second. And but it was black and white, uh, and it is said very beat up. up was uh, you could tell it was tinted because there's literally a splice at every every scene change. And so when we go from there's a whole section in the middle where there's a lot of indoor outdoor at night. And it's from in to out to in to out to in to out to <laughs> in to out, and it's and it's so it, you know it obviously was was tinted material once upon a time, so I had to reconstruct the tints, but um, but also it was it was very beat up. Um, there were a lot of scenes that were you know five frames long, five frame scenes, so on those I stretch printed those to at least give a flavor for you know oh yeah we've got a close-up of a guy here and yeah there's a few places where you see it slow down a little so that you can see what's going on and then there were a couple missing titles obviously missing titles um that i had to create from scratch um i had the original copyright records but i didn't have a title list so a couple of them i confess right now i had to fabricate as best i could oh my in God. In, in the style and the artwork to 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 match um, but anyway, so 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 that was a, that was the one that took me the most time. But that was from very good thirty-five millimeter material, and it looks really good. Um, it's it's maybe the one that was the most work, and the, it's the one I'm I'm happiest with um, of the whole set. Um, the other one, though, the oubliette, that's a really interesting story um, that I was tangentially involved in back in nineteen eighty three. Uh, Joe M. Suka, who was then at the uh, AFI, called me and he said, you familiar with a Lon Chaney film named The Oubliette? I said, oh yeah, I I know it. It's lost. He said, well, not anymore. Um, There was somebody, uh, apparently it was a projectionist. A guy had been a projectionist. You know, he died or sold his house and the family was remodeling and there was a front porch and they were tearing apart the front porch and they found three cans of film And the three cans were an original nitrate print of the oubliac. Now, this is in 1983 of a 1914 film that survived in Georgia heat (laughs) for, you know, 60 plus years. Go figure. And it was in pristine condition. So uh, originally the way this played out, AFI shipped it out to um, UCLA and uh, Bob Gitt and I, Bob Gitt was the archivist at the time. We were the ones that unpacked it, looked at the, you know, l- looked at the cans, and, and I was, you know, I'm shaking, trembling on this, and said, <laughs> oh my gosh, this looks good. And then for reasons I don't recall, um, uh, UCLA decided that LOC ought to do the restoration on this. So they shipped it to LOC, and at the time, the Society for Cinephiles, which is the the forerunner of Cinecon, it used to be the Society put on Cinecon, now they're just Cinecon Inc. We would take surplus money from conventions and um, put it into restoration projects, and so uh, we had had a couple very successful cinecons in in '82 and '83 that had made a lot of lot of money, and so we funded the you know the preservation. Of um, of uh, the oubliette, why? Because I think because I was president at the yeah. time and had <laughs> yeah. some 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 sway. Probably complete misuse and of of power at that time. And then we ran it at the um, at the 1984 cinecon that I Rob McKay and I put on in San Francisco. And then it barely saw the light of day again. I mean, I think Murray Glass did a 16 millimeter negative of it. Uh, put it out in 16, that's been duped, it's turned up on YouTube, and, and that's all that's been around. But LSE still has the original pristine nitrate print, and so they did a 4K scan of it. And it's interesting because the first two reels are black and white, and the third reel is tinted, which we assume that's how it was shown at the time. And uh, But that's not, certainly unusual for the it's, time. Yeah, I, 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 I don't understand why uh, this was. But, um, you know, the third reel, and the third reel has, has more night scenes and interior scenes. So, it, you know, the third reel is a little more amenable to tint, to tinting. The rest of it just kind of takes place outside. Um, and so, anyway, they did a 4K scan from the nitrate, and it, and it looks amazing. You know, this is what they call Shepard's Law. You know, David Shepard right. postulated <laughs> that, that, uh, that quality of preserved material is in, inversely proportional to quality of content. Um, it's probably the least interesting film on the set, and Cheney has a very small part. Um, but boy, it looks good actually i I
1: thought it was quite interesting. One thing that I found is interesting is it's about Francois Villon who Silent Film fans will know is the character that uh, John Barrymore plays in The Beloved Rogue and mm-hmm. played by various other people, Ronald Coleman. Ronald if, Coleman did it in if, if I
4: Were King in the ni- late 1930s. Which was
1: done previously by William Farnham, I think, wasn't it? In, yeah. Tw- in 20. I- I've always been a little baffled why that particular French poet and the king at the time, I think is what, Louis XI, uh, why they were so interesting to people back then, as opposed to any number of other medieval characters? I guess I, it was I, "If I Were King" was a stage hit.
4: So yeah, I, I mean, I I have I have wondered the same thing myself. I mean, you know, what is it about, you know, about these characters? You know, I mean, he was a he was a freaking poet. I mean, is, is we yeah. you know is he really that interesting? But but you know. But you know the the Barrymore version and the Ronald Coleman version, you know they turned it into a swashbuckler, which you know okay. I mean, they're they're those are two films I like very much. Um, you know, this is more of a you know while he has adventures, it's I wouldn't describe it as a swashbuckler. Although I think there's at least you know one sword fight in it. Um, and um, so anyway,, you know, it's it's a go figure, you know, yeah. <laughs> what is it about that? But this was part of a series. It was called the uh, uh that Universal was gonna do big epic, and this is when they were mostly doing one reelers, and they put this out as a three-reeler. and I think it was originally intended to be in three or four parts. And the first one is the oubliette and um, and they all were to star Murdoch Macquarie, who was, you know, the and Pauline Bush, who were kind of the leading man leading lady of universals of that period. Um, they, and those two made, you know, 30, 40 films with Cheney together. Um, and and so they did part one is the one we have here, the Oubliette, there was a part two, the higher law, which Cheney also appears in as a different character. And if there was an intent to make more, they apparently never made more. I I, I don't know, did it, did it not make money? Did it yeah, not maybe people you know, out did, in, in Augusta, yeah.
1: Kansas were just not as interested in Francois <laughs> Villon as they thought they would be.
4: Yeah. So so anyway, I, like I said, I I don't I don't know the reason behind it, but they never if there was intended to be more of the series, they never finished it. Think it think of it as the golden compass film version <laughs> that, you know, well here's part one right. of the movie and then and then we'll just not bother to film anymore. Um so so anyway so so that's what it is. But but getting back to your original question, where did this stuff come from? You know, those two I would say are the uh, you know kind of the, the the crown jewels of this particular set because they're new thirty five scans, um, uh, you know, very lovingly restored. And they look they look really good, and and they're they're very interesting to look at um, from a Chinese standpoint. The other three are a little more complicated. Um, uh, the, um, the 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 fragment that I put in, which is uh, all that survives on a film called *The Millionaire Poppers* from um, from 1915, um, that actually came from the late uh, film collector Rusty Castleton, who had come across a nitrate fragment. And uh, Rusty never would divulge his sources. He was, a, oh, you know, secret source. So, <laughs> so I don't know where it came from, and I don't know if that nitrate exists, other than I can tell you that it, it none of the archives appear to have it. Um, and um, But it was a three-reel film, and there's about, you know, five minutes or so, four and a half, five minutes survives. And Rusty had just done uh, what I would call a non-restored 16-egg off the nitrate. It had sprocket damage, you know, out of frame scenes. I mean, you know, just, it was, it was a mess, but it was, it was, it was an interesting mess. And I believe that it's most of the Cheney footage because Cheney plays a gangster. You know, the story again is centered around, it's a, there's a love interest um, uh, between, you know, Millard K. Wilson and Grace Thompson. And the story is clearly about them, and if you read the synopsis, which I've put a, a quick title of in the uh, uh, in the the restoration on on this disc, you know it's about her going into a boarding house where the landlord is is the the crooked and the slimy Cheney, and he is kind of put in his place by the hero early on, and that's the footage that we have. So it's possible this nitrate clip was saved by. Um, by someone back then who was a Cheney fan, who, you know, clipped it out of a print. This is probably, you know, most, if not all, of the Cheney footage. Well, anyway, I I had to do a lot of cleanup. Literally, this was a frame by frame. Uh, It's still a little bit of a mess. You can see there's nitrate decomposition. Um, I had to crop it to a slightly narrower aspect ratio because there's so much edge damage on it. So for people who ask the question now, it says, you know, how come this, this one looks, it looks more like a 1928 talkie, you know, in, in terms of being very square. And that's because there, there was a lot of edge damage. So I cleaned it up the best I can and put it in as kind of a bonus film as, as a fragment. But again, really interesting because it's a non-makeup gangster role, um, uh, for Cheney. And, um, and so that, that. Actually, came off a 16 millimeter print that derived from a negative that Rusty Castleton did um, off a a now unknown location um, nitrate print. What do we get
1: from seeing him in these different roles? What do you what do you take away from it?
4: Well, I mean, you know, they're they're all interesting. For you know, he was it's very clear he was doing a job. This was may have been a day's work for him, And, and and you get into this period. And, you know, in, in 1915, you know, let's see, he made uh, 35 films in 1915. Some of them, he had leading roles like Father and the Boys, which was two films after the Millionaire Poppers, Or um, A Mother's Atonement, um, which was on the last, the volume one set we put out. He had a, you know, not enormous role, but but a significant role. The Chimney Secret, he played a dual role and he directed the film. So he was very busy in 1915. Um, I mean, it's just so fascinating to see these things. And in fact, we only have, um, uh, again, from this from this 1915 period, uh, we have very few that survive. Uh, you know, I mean, Dolly's Scoop survives complete. Millionaire poppers is a fragment. Mother's Atonement, that's on the other disc. That's, that's it, it, two-thirds of it exists, but all the Chaney footage exists. Fascination the Fleur de Lis is a fragment. And that's it from what we have from 1915, which was his transition year. That was when he had gone from kind of making, you know, you know just small parts in films to, you know, like the Oubliette, where he's on screen for, you know, two minutes or whatever um and he started directing in 1915 directed six films i think they're all 1915 and then we end 1915 where he's in father and father and the boys which was a very popular stage play and he had a major part and that is the film often credited with kind of putting him on the path to stardom and after father and the boys most of his films after that he now has a Significant role, not always the lead, not always you know the leading man or the love interest, but a significant part, you know thereon after. Yeah. Um, and so, um, so you know, what I get out of it is, you know, you 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 have a fragment from this transitional period here, and and you know, and he's good, <laughs> you know, he's he plays this really slimy, uh, you know, landlord. And and you can just see the the evolution of the character that a few years later in films like uh, Outside the, law, the yeah. law and The Wicked Darling, you, you, you see that developing. You say, oh, I see where he's going to go with this.
1: Right. No, that was exactly what I thought was. Oh, there's his Outside the Law character being born.
4: Yeah. So this is maybe the, the strangest of all the stories. Um, by the Sun's Rays was put out uh, in the 1970s by a company called Breakspear Films and they only did super eight negatives. And the, I've actually talked to Kevin Brownlow about this company and he said, you know, they're long gone. He said, I don't know what happened to the material, but the guy who did it uh, clearly had access to some very high quality prints. I'm guessing nitrate, Um, again, this is not stuff that any archive is holding, but he had access. And of all crazy things, he made super eight negatives out of them. And so he sold super eight, prince of film. so by the sun's rays was one of the you know one of these you know very early uh, uh films that uh, of cheney that he sold so you know i bought it back in the 70s and then in the 80s i had the super 8 blown i you know went to a very good lab to have this done optically and and you know very high quality um, and they blew it up to a 16 millimeter negative. And then I, again, sold 16 millimeter prints of this in the 80s and 90s. And um, and so I still have that 16 millimeter negative. And so, yes, it's a 16 negative from a super eight print from a super eight negative from a nitrate print. You know, it it looks okay. It, I, I, I had debated whether putting it on and I talked to Ben Modell. I, you know, I said, ah, you want this? And I sent him some, you know some little frame shots and clips and he said you know in the interest of completeness I think people would enjoy having it and at the end of the day you know you can do enough digital cleanup nowadays there's, there's right. the you know the miracle of digital you can do it up and you throw a tin on it and put a score on it you know and it's pretty good but that's uh, you know and that's an early western uh the in fact it's his cheney's earliest complete film there's in fact there's only one film earlier this that survives at all and and this is so this is his earliest um, appearance on screen that still exists today, um, you know, in a, in a complete print, and uh, and he plays the villain. You know, it's a it's a good it, it, it's a pretty good meaty role. So um, so that that is a very strange uh, providence on this that you know comes from this strange progression uh triumph is uh was a lost film for a long time that's what five real that's one of the later films that's from uh 1917 and uh a film collector george wagner found an incomplete nitrate print of this uh many years ago i don't recall the exact date but i think it was in the early 90s and you know he eventually you know i think either donated or loaned the loaned the print to um uh, the academy And they did a, they did a preservation as such. I mean, they, they just, you know, they put it, uh, you know, they did a preservation. They, they created like one title at the end to explain what was done. So, but George had the 35 millimeter material. So he loaned that to me and I took it to the lab and had a good 16 millimeter negative made. And then that 16 millimeter negative, I used to, um, to create, uh, to, 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 you know, to do the digital. Uh, and I should say, by the way, uh, Library of Congress, only two of the films came from Library of Congress, but all five of the scans were done by Library of Congress. Okay. And and they were done not for this project, but for a program I did at Mostly Lost uh, several years ago, where I did a program on the survival of Lon Chaney's films, and you can actually find that on my YouTube channel, that whole presentation. And, uh, and they scanned clips, but they scanned the entire films. And so I was able to use these you know, very good LOC scans, because, you know, they're, they're top of the line uh, technology. Um, and I use those for all these reconstructions. So, so Triumph, again, it's it's the first three reels. And then I had to reconstruct the end with titles. But it turns out, without, I don't want to, this is not too much of a spoiler alert. The whole film is done as a flashback. And I was able to kind of re- reverse engineer how the <laughs> flashback ends um, you know, because it, it begins with uh, with the, you know the lead characters talking on a on a train ben- at a bench at a train station, and so I was able to kind of take some footage and reuse it from the beginning to the end to kind of bridge the story, um, and you know reconstructed that, and again you know had to try and duplicate the original tint. The nitrate was tinted, um, and um, so anyway, so so that's where the, so they all come from interesting places. You got two from archives. Uh, you know, one from a defunct film distributor, one from a deceased film collector, and the other from a negative that I got off the guy that found the nitrate. So, uh, you know, I mean, it's the, uh, you know, they come from all these different sources. <laughs> and, uh, yeah. and you know, I cobbled it together. It's a picture both of Cheney's early career and development, but also
1: just the state of film survival. Because you, you get sort of examples of... The quality and completeness that you could have on any given tile varying from, you know, here's a little piece of it to here's a complete 35 millimeter film that lived under someone's porch for some reason.
4: Yeah, exactly. And, uh, you know, I mean, the the quality ranges from pretty good to to astonishing and most of it is, is quite good. Yeah, I mean, the really other than yeah, yeah, you you watched it, so you can comment as well. I mean, by by the sun's rays is you know was a little bit doopy, but the rest of them look very good.
1: Actually, I mean, it seemed fine to me. I mean, I could see what kind of work had to be done to it, but I didn't find it a chore to watch at all. I, I like that one. It's a you know, it's just a good example of what Universal was doing then. You know, one one real sort of standard Western stories, but with a little imagination to it. You know, it's got it's got kind of a Odd little plot in terms of you know what what the bad guys are up to and how
4: they do it so. Yeah. Um, well, you, well, but and what I was going to say too, one more thing about these that you know, and Universal had all these different production companies. It's um, you know, and you know, it's like we look today. You watch a film, you know, Universal today. There might be like seven credits right before the you know you, 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 you might have Bad Robot along with Working Title, else, Working yeah. Title, and and whatever. Well, they had you know, their uh, Imp and Joker were like their comedy units, and Nestor was their Western unit. And uh, you know, and, then, yeah, and the
1: yeah. the Francois Villon one comes from Bison One Hundred and One, I think. Yeah, yeah, yeah Which yeah, is, one, yeah. which you think yeah. is going to be a Western unit, but apparently, you know, Westerns included medieval France for them. Yeah, so.
4: yeah, no, yeah, no. One Hundred and One Bison was, uh, you know, that did not that those tended not to be Westerns. Okay, uh, I mean, you know, those, those were more dramas because you look at some of the other One Hundred and One Bisons. Again, the the Oubliette, was part of this, you know, small town girl, which is pretty much as it sounds is, you know, kind of a small, you know, small or, you know, rural America story. Um, uh, You know, he was in that. Uh, But but what's so interesting is here he makes, you know, they released by the sun's rays is, uh, you know, we don't know exactly when it was made, but they, you know, it's released July 22nd of 1914 with Cheney. And then the Oubliette released August fifteenth, nineteen fourteen, from one hundred and one Bison with Cheney. Well, I, again, we don't know the order, but did he did he work on the, with the Nestor unit for for a week, and then like you know walk across the, the the studios you know over to the Bison unit? You know I don't know probably.
1: Yeah. Hey, we need a guy who's good. Oh, the Cheney guy. Yeah. You know he can do anything. Yeah. So. Yeah, no, I, I can totally see that. Um, all right, so this is coming out. Uh, I saw Ben just said the the date moved slightly, but it's coming yep. out August second now. Is that right? Right.
4: It was it was originally going to be July twenty sixth, and for reason that I don't understand, we Ross said they said there was some issue. I think the the place that does the manufacturing of the discs got backed up now that's curious because I'm looking at right now I have a stack of 16 of the blu-rays <laughs> fully manufactured shrink wrap blu-rays sitting in my uh, office here so uh, so they clearly were able to do a uh, an initial run I think may- maybe what they do is they do a test run right to, to make sure that but but there was some backup. so it, it's going to be August 2nd which I believe is a you know coming well, I don't know when you're gonna run this podcast but it's coming up very soon. It'll be slightly in the future. Yeah, slightly uh, in the future. Um, uh, but you you can pre-order it now. It's on Amazon, Deep Discount, uh, uh, you know, Critics' Choice. They've all got links to it, and you can pre-order now. Okay.
1: Um, and then you've got a bunch of other stuff in the works. At least you sent me a bunch of things, uh, and I don't even know what all all of the where all of them are going and what they're coming out as and when and so on. So, tell me about some of them.
4: Okay, well, well, I can. I mean, I can tell you. It's. I sent you a bunch of other kind of, kind of first, not not rough cut, but sort of the final masters that I sent to Ben. You got it before Ben has even video mastered it yet. So, so there's a there's a story behind these, and there's there's two features and two shorts, and the features are Lorraine of the Lions, and um, the other is the Fourth Commandment, and then there's two two um, Senate shorts, um, Ice Cold Cocos. And um, uh, uh, oh, I'm blanking. Uh, I don't remember the name. Uh, of the flight other got flight in the title. I um, uh, love it, first flight. Okay. Um, this is what happens when you get old. Your brain you know, turns to, to mush. Um, and those came about because of the Cinecon line. And you know, many people know because of the pandemic, Cinecon had to shut down. And I should say, three of the four titles were because of uh, Cinecon line. Stan Tafel had reached out to me. And said, you know, do you have anything interesting we can run? Well, you know, I've been working with the Library of Congress for a number of years now on the their silent film project, and I think you've had other people on the program in the past talking about this, so I won't I won't try and reconstruct all that here. But basically, LOC is doing finding 16 millimeter films that do not exist in any archive, and they're they're borrowing them to do um, high quality digital scans um and you know they're not paying for this but what they do is they give you a, a copy of the scan so i looked at the you know something like 84 films of mine that that loc has scanned and i was throwing titles out to stan i said oh, what about this what about this what about this and so he said oh you know yeah let's let's use that and so you know when while we're all locked down in the pandemic i was doing scores for these so um uh, so I had approached Ben about putting these out, but but I have to back up first because there's a there's a there's a more fun story about Lorraine and <laughs> the Lions. We did run Lorraine and the Lions at, at Cinecon Line a, a couple of years ago, but um, the, the story on that goes further back. And that's uh, a good friend of mine, Rob McKay, um, had acquired a very rare print of Lorraine and the Lions, which is a really fun Patsy Ruth Miller, uh, Norman Carey. Uh, uh, a uh, proto King Kong about, you know, bringing the, the giant ape back from civilization. It breaks out and, you know, grabs the girl and carries her to the top of a tall building. And uh, the only thing missing is the airplanes. And, and I love the film. And I kept saying to him, I said, Rob was selling me some of his silence as he kind of switched over from film to, to Blu-ray. And I said, you know, you got to I said, you got to sell that to me. You know, you, I got to have that film. And he said well i'm not going to sell it until i can until i can replace it with a good blu-ray and i said well how am i you know yeah. how when's, are you going to replace that with a blu-ray nobody's, nobody's going to happen yeah. nobody's, nobody's nobody's got it i mean this is i i only know of two two copies in existence of this print and and so anyway so when the silent movie project was being done by LSC, they were very interested and they wanted to copy it so they did a, a good scan i then put a score on it, gave it to Rob. Rob video produced it, so Rob McCary is technically the the producer of that particular video. And then once he had a nice Blu-ray, he sold me his print. So I did all that just <laughs> to get the print. But then I had it, and I and this is back in you know 2016 or 17, and I approached Ben. And I said, are you interested in putting this out? And he said, oh, yeah, I, I, you know, this, this, I think would be really popular. The horror people will love this. Definitely a horror movie genre type film. And, you know, we started working on it. I sent him all the video masters. You know, we figured out the release. He started talking about release dates. He had cover art made. And I was at the Library of Congress and I was telling David Pierce about this and you know most of the universal silence, the copyrights were not re- renewed. I mean, I mean they, they destroyed them all. Why, why would they renew the copyrights? And I mentioned this in passing to David. And, and David, who never forgets anything uh, ever, said, I think that's still under copyright. And I said, oh, why would Lorraine of the Lions be copyrighted? And he looked it up and said, yeah, it's still copyrighted. And so maybe I don't know. Maybe they um, maybe they copyrighted it for the story, and they planned to remake it in the nineteen forties with, with you know, Maria we know, Montez. We go, yeah. Well, well, you know, I, I was saying, with, you know, George Zuko, a guy in an ape suit, and, and <laughs> Evelyn and Evelyn Anchors, right? Maybe, but so we so we had to put it on the back burner, and so I felt I felt really bad because Bannon had done a lot of work. And you know, we didn't do a Kickstarter on it or anything. Um, you know, Ben had done work on the cover and I felt bad about that because he put some effort into it. And so we just put it aside. Well, meanwhile, the pandemic comes along and and time marches on and suddenly it falls into the public domain. Um and so um so I had these these two features and two shorts, and Ben and I talked about how to release it. You know, Lorraine of the Lions is probably commercial, but this other stuff not so much um and although a lot of people were very interested in the fourth commandment which is which is a very good film and i had people right after we ran at cinecon saying uh, writing me and saying oh please tell me you're gonna put that out on video well anyway Bet and i talked and you know we said eh, you know we'd need a kickstarter you got to pay for cover art there's a lot of upfront costs and uh, you know i i don't care so much about the money and i just i don't have the time or energy to deal with Kickstarters and he's very busy other projects and then he said well you know would you be interested in doing this as part of the accidentally preserved series and you know he's been doing these accidentally preserved which are you know things unusual things that have come out of private collections that's the theme of it and uh, and he's I would say this is mostly so far and I don't know what volume he's up to volume four or five Um, and he's mostly done one and two real comedy shorts um that he's gotten his hands on that library of congress or others have scanned and then you know and then he's put his own scores on them and then put them out and he said well if we do accidentally preserved that's just part of a series we don't have to worry about cover art i don't have to there's no extra expense so let's do that so we agreed to do that so this is going to be coming out as a special two two disc set of accidentally preserved with with the two shorts and the two um uh and the two features and, oh, and uh, when
1: do you think that'll come?
4: That out? is going to be that that apparent he said he thinks that's one of his next projects. Um, he, I, I don't want to pin Ben down to a date. And sure. the masters are done. They've been, they've been delivered to Ben. Um, uh, he just has to do it. And I I don't want to push him. But he was talking maybe September. OK,
1: um,
4: it, it will be soon. It will be this year. Um, I, I just don't know when. But um, you know, there, you know, again, the it's a must-buy disc if only for Lorraine of the Lions, which you which are not, and you know, it's a very it's very good copy, and I did a full orchestral score on it, similar to to with the uh, to what I did with the uh, with the Cheneys. and um, you know, and it's quite a good film, and uh, and it really is astonishing for people who are again students of horror, but especially students of King Kong. Where you say you say, oh my gosh, this you know, I mean this this had to be an inspiration for for, for King Kong. Well, yeah,
1: no, I saw it. at, uh, I think it's Sinéisation. Some years yeah. ago, was that your print? It probably was.
4: Uh, it might. It might have been. Um, I've lo- uh, I don't. I don't recall. Okay. Well, anyway, the, the one other person who has a print might have loaned it as well. Yeah. I don't want to say yeah. who that is because don't want to <laughs> give it away.
1: But everyone was just like, "Oh yeah, King Kong. Yeah, that's that's King Kong right there." So, you know, people people instantly saw that, and and yeah, it was fun. I mean, how can you resist a movie called Lorraine of the Lions for crying yeah. out loud? So
4: yeah. And, and and with and with Patsy Ruth Miller and Norman Carey, Kerry two years after Hunchback of Notre Dame, so you know they were they were re teamed after Hunchback.
1: So you really get to see a, an example of his wide range. <laughs>
4: <laughs> well, it's you know it's a fascinating film because it, it not only has this this jungle wild animal you know and bring the bring the big ape back to civilization, but it has this whole secondary theme where Norman Carey is a, um, uh you know he he's a spiritualist and he can look in crystal balls and see things and that's how he finds the island that Patsy Ruth Miller has been marooned on it's uh, you know it's got this all these wild elements to it uh you know it's got it's got it all it's got animal mutilation, spiritualism and i got to say Patsy Ruth Miller wears less clothing than you have ever seen her in i mean she is she is barely covered you know you, you get to see a lot of her wearing basically like an animal skin for for much of the movie and it, it's it's not bad at all
1: which makes it a good pairing with the Fourth Commandment, which is you know about <laughs> sin and
4: well, well and yeah, before, behaving yeah. properly. So well, exactly, and and yeah, the Fourth Command is worth mentioning. The Fourth Commandment, which is a very good film, directed by Emery Johnson. Uh, he's a director I like. Uh, he's not well known today. He worked mostly. He was from San Francisco. He worked mostly in the Bay Area, and he tended to do films that were Bay Area themed films. So this is a film. It begins with the 1906 earthquake. But but then it then it becomes more of a classic melodrama. But it's it's maybe most noteworthy is that it stars Belle Bennett, and you know Belle Bennett, silent film Bus will know her from um, Stella Dallas, which is you know she gives a terrific performance. And you know what what if they had Oscars, then would have been an Oscar nominated performance in Stella Dallas. But that was kind of the role she played. The you know, the, you know, the, the mother, you know, the, the poor put upon mother who's, you know, losing children or whatever. And it's, it's that kind of role again. And, uh, you know, it's, it's, it's pretty florid and over the top and, uh, and she is, and she's pretty florid and over the top, but she's really good.
1: Yeah. And, I have uh, to it's say it's at first I was sort of like, yeah, this is, I don't need one of these things and then boy it, it just swept me up and it got better and better as it went along yeah it's so, uh, you
4: know and 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 it's got a great great ending and uh so anyway a great start great ending and uh so anyway that was another one that needed a lot of cleanup that i don't mean, know if we can get into talking about stuff that i've been doing working with universal pictures i sent this to them they wanted to do a video release on this and they they got i've been i had been sharing a lot of prints with them and they got it and Janice Simpson, who at the time was was running the arch uh, the archival program, she's now actually doing it at Disney. Um, she she said, you know, she said this is a really fragile print, and we don't want to take a chance of something happening to it in the scanner. And I said, "No, no, no, you know, you know, I mean, if you're worried about breaking it." I know I loaned them a prince once. They called me. They were just, you know, they were ready to throw themselves on a sword. I said, "Oh, I'm so sorry. We we broke this print." And I said, "Don't worry about it. Where would you break it?" And the leader I said, "You're you're you're calling me apologetically like, you know, ready to, you know, they're ready to commit Harry Carey because you broke the leader? You know, <laughs> who cares? That's why it's leader. But anyway, they they chose not to do it. Um, they they said it was too fresh. Now, Library of Congress had no such concern. Oh yeah, slap that slap that sucker on the scanner. Yeah, we'll, and they we'll scanned it.
1: Slot that in for yeah. two to two thirty. Yeah. yeah,
4: yeah. So 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 that's that's another one. The scanner. I should say uh, just to, to do a shout out the um, uh, the ice cold cocos, which is on the set is the one film of that series not scanned by LOC. That was actually done by Niles Film Museum done by Zach Sutherland at Niles. And that was, again, a, that was a favor for Stan Tafel. Um, I have a nice tinted Kodoscope print of Ice Cold Cocos, and Stan had seen it, and he said, boy, I really want to run that at Cinecon Line. And I said, well, that's not one that LOC has scanned. And they were looking to see if ProTech can do it, and this was literally two weeks before Cinecon, <laughs> and um, and I, you know, contacted the folks at Niles and and Zach Sutherland who who walks on water and it's just terrific. Said I, I can do it for you, and so this was done super quickly. Um, you know, he scanned it. He got me the files. I I slapped a score on it as quickly as I could, which I, in fact that that was kind of a fun score because I did. I was in a hurry, so I did something I haven't done before. I did the score as a piano duet. It's just two pianos, um, and um, and so uh, and you know, and got it just in time for Cinecon. And then you know, if you, if if you have a scan of a tinted c- c- codiscop with a new score that's not out on video anywhere, you know, you ought to put it out. So, uh, so that's how that that came to pass. But so, so those four films again, on, all on this accidentally preserved set, um, should be out soon. Um, I think Ben was hoping to get pre-orders announced by about the time of CinEcon, which would be in you know just really a little over a month, yeah, f- f- five six weeks from now. But but I'm not. I, it, it'll be out. It'll be out when it's out.
1: Yeah. Well, you know, since we're talking about Universal, um, let's talk about something they released last year. Uh, the Hunchback of Notre Dame, which originates with a print that you have, which is the best quality, closest to original material surviving on the film, even though it's 16
4: millimeter. Tell me about right. that. So again, to take a step back, Universal destroyed most of their silent um, uh, film material in 1948. They literally they kept a they kept a handful of titles. Um, and and destroyed all the rest because they said, you know, there's no market for this silent film. And in 1948 they they probably weren't wrong. Um, and they uh, and so they, you know, they kept things with soundtracks like the Man who laughs and the 1930 Phantom of the Opera, but just, you know, destroyed the 1925 Phantom of the Opera, um, you know, a whole host of other things. Um, but anyway, they, um, but they did have, a, what they call the show at home library. And, you know, just as, uh, Eastman Kodak had the Kodoscope library where they licensed films from Warners, Fox, Paramount, and others, and released uh, often cut down versions of films, which is the source of many, many silent films that don't survive any other way. Um, they, um, but Universal... Um, had the show-at-home library where they tend to put films out uncut. So for many years, um, all we had on Phantom of the Opera were these 16-millimeter show-at-home prints. Now, they all derive from a a negative done in the 1950s off of a show-at-home print, and that's the source of the Blackhawk print and just about everything that's come out. There was a more recent print that David Shepard had done that was a 16 off of a 35 dupe negative, um, and that I think was the source of the Flickr Alley Blu-ray. But um, all of these derive from show-at-home prints. Now, Hunchback was a very popular show-at-home title. You know, schools, libraries, churches, in rare cases, private collectors, they bought these prints. And Hunchback was so popular that they that they wore out the... I'm not clear if they wore out the whole thing and had to do a whole new negative, but wore out the, the beginning of Real one and so they had to. They made new titles in a non-matching style, and that's what we're all used to seeing. That's you know, if you've seen the Blackhawk print, just about every other print, that's what we're used to seeing. So this was another one of the treasures that came out of Gordon Burkhouse collection, along with the reel two of um, uh, the Battle of Century, the Laurel and Hardy, um, which we talked about on this podcast several years ago. Uh, And, um, you know, years earlier, Gordon had offered to sell me a show-at-home print of um, uh, Hunchback. And I thought, oh, wow, sure, yeah, that's good for me. And, you know, it was kind of a beat-up, you know, show-at-home print. But, you know, I said, wow, this is great. And I'm thinking, why would he be selling something like this? Well, when I got his collection, I found out. Because he had this pristine print made before they wore out the first negative and um, and it had all the original titles, and it was it was I would describe it as very lightly tinted. It was a barely barely visible yellow tint, but it really was clean and really looked good. So so I loaned that to Universal, and they said that made up about ninety eight percent of the of the um, of the restoration. Um, they went to Packard Foundation and Packard. Uh, had um, a, another print that, um, and they said they pulled a little bit of material from that, and you can actually tell the Packard print isn't as sharp. There are a few places where you look, and you'll say, "Oh, you know, gee, this looks just a little bit less sharp," and that is from from a different print, and I think yeah. it's made off of that that later negative. So, so Universal, it's not just that they had the best show at home print they anyone's ever gotten their hands on to do this copy, but they had. 2018 technology. you know we've had we've had other things done you know the, you know the show at home copied in the 1950s just not going to be the same and uh, so they can image stabilize it and you know do do all sorts of things that just weren't possible even just a decade or so ago. And so uh, the, the world premiere of it was uh, at the uh, San Francisco Silent Film Festival back in May and on a big screen, boy it looks good. It really looks good, and everyone commented. They said it's like seeing the film for the first time. Right. So, so, so that that came for me, and I have to say, Universal treated me like royalty. I, I was down <laughs> there visiting, and they they gave me a whole tour of the of the restoration unit, and then for fun, you know, they we wandered around the back lot. So I got to do what people on the tour don't get to do, and that's go up on the steps of the Psycho House and yeah. you know, get, get your picture taken and think, things like that. But, uh, and sadly, when the pandemic came along, you know, Universal cut almost that entire preservation unit and almost everybody got laid off and is now gone off to other jobs. But they had borrowed several films from me. The other one that's, um, that came for me, that's out on Blu-ray now is um, 13 Washington Square. Uh, that, that was another one that, um, that they had done. Um, th- but some of the things they've scanned have not seen the light of day. And I don't know if they will. Um, I have a really uh, gorgeous-looking, and not so hot of a film, but the 1925 um, uh, Raffles the Amateur Craftsman. Um, uh, you know, I have a multi-tinted print that they scanned a number of years ago. I, I don't know if that'll ever come out. They were, they were doing several silent preservations um, a year. And, um, you know, that unit's largely been shut down now, and I don't know what will happen. Uh, they also, they scanned my 1925 Phantom of the Opera. I have a I have quite a nice Phantom that's been scanned by a couple different people now. And um, they had talked about it. That would be another prestige project. And they have all the original color footage in their archive. And so, you know, they were going to try and do something with that and, you know, and reconstruct uh, as best as they could a complete 25 Phantom. Um, I, I don't know if that'll ever see the light of day yeah. either.
1: So, well, that yeah, and that was something that people asked after the Hunchback version came out was that like, well, is this going to be same kind of thing going to be done with Phantom, which you know has had yeah, many I, different I cracks at it. Yeah. Well,
4: there's there's there are I know I know you just had uh, Jack Thiekston on your your podcast recently, and he mentioned in passing that there you know he's had some involvement in uh, in doing Phantom, and and they were rounding up Phantom prints and mine was one of them and uh and you know doing scans and comparing them uh there what exists is is all i don't believe anybody has an original show at home of phantom if one exists i'm not aware of its existence um i believe packard has one and jerry Goulden has told me that it's essentially un un unscannable i mean it's it's a mess um, but there is there was a um a negative made off a show at home way back like in the 40s or 50s uh, off of pristine material and a very good negative um and that there there's a handful of those prints around i, I know a couple of collectors who have those and so they kind of rounded all those up to compare them and uh if so, I don't know if something will ever come of it we'll have to see if down the road something happens with that but but who knows. But but I mean universal. Nobody has the wherewithal of universal to 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 put the kind of effort and time and money into doing these preservations. But I was I you know they said how much how much do you want for these prints and i said what i want is a thank you notice on the end credit i you know i want to <laughs> I, I you know i, I you know I, I don't want or need money for it i want to get the best material out there so if you're going to commit to do it i'll let you do it i'm just going to ask for a thank you and uh, you know, and, and that'll be sufficient. So, so who knows? The
1: studios actually appreciating collectors. That would that would be nice.
4: Well, well, yeah, that would that would be a change. Well, I I mean, as the, the years ago when the you know, when CinEcon gave an award to to Turner Classic Movies, Ted Turner didn't come, but the then president came and he said, "Okay, I got to say it in front of you. Uh, for years, we were idiots. You know," <laughs> he, he said. You know, we behave badly, and we're sorry for that, and we're trying to make amends for it now. And you know, there's now this very, very close relationship between the studios and collectors, because collectors have a lot of stuff that the studios want. I mean, even on, you know, getting out of the silent era, but even when UCLA did the restoration of Under Two Flags, the Ronald Coleman, the 1936. You know, I have the original roadshow cut from a 16 millimeter Armed Forces print made in the 1940s, and you know, when they went to do a restoration for 20th Century Fox they found all they had was the reissue. So so I loaned my 16 to UCLA, who took the 20 minutes or so of missing footage, I think maybe 15 minutes of missing footage, and used it for the 35 restoration. And, you know, I mean, where would you go if you didn't have collectors to provide stuff like that? So, I mean, getting back to the, uh, the very beginning of the conversation, you know, I'd like to do more Chinese. Um, We've kind of bled the Library of Congress dry. I mean, there, there's a couple things, you know, that I'd like to get a, a good, have somebody ought to do a good version of Shadows and a, and a good release on the shock. And, uh, you know, there's material out there. There's actually on Shadows is very good material. Um, you know, those aren't high on the list, but um, I'm in early discussions and I can't really talk about the details because nobody's committed to anything yet. But there's, a, there's an opportunity um, to round up the European material, that there, there, a lot, most of the American stuff now, except for one film at Eastman House, uh, that that I would dearly love to do, and that's the uncut version of *The Light in the Dark*. Uh, is at Eastman. Well, actually, there's there's more than that at Eastman. There's there's a couple things at Eastman, but um, but there's a lot of stuff in Europe. Um, you know, the, the the French, the the the, the Belgians, the Germans, Eye uh, uh, Institute, they've all got some unusual Chinese stuff. So I'm in some real preliminary discussions with an with an unnamed European distributor that you may guess, <laughs> um, because I've worked with this company many times. Um, but but no one has committed to anything, so I really don't want to say anything. But there is a possibility that we might sweep through all the European, you know, Russia has some stuff. Right. Uh, probably not a good time to be going to Gus <laughs> to try and get material right now. But um, you know, there is the discussion that maybe a couple of years down the road, we might be able to put out a set of all the, um, the European-held material. And, and if we can do that, then we really will start approaching um, completeness on Cheney. I mean, my, my goal before I die is I would like to get everything that exists on Cheney out there. And you know, we're, we're pretty good now, um, but there, and, and a lot of the stuff, by the way, that exists in Europe is fragments. And, uh, you know, there's a fragment of tragedy whispering uh, Creek. There's a fragment of uh, the Mark of Cain. Uh, you know, there's a fragment of fascination of the Fleur de lis uh, you know, you kind of just run through the the, the list of, of of odd things. And, um, you know, but I, I'd like to get them out there. and and I think possibly like that fragment of, um, Uh, millionaire popper's. it might be a fragment but it might be like cheney's only scene in the film the good stuff yeah it might we we don't we don't know i mean you know there's a fragment there 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 are short fragments of daredevil jack cheney's one serial at ucla and unfortunately cheney isn't in any of it it's a jack dempsey serial and it's like you know i was so excited to see that and then you know oh crap you know it's it's there's no cheney um but um so you know I mean I mean would I like to do Daredevil Jack sure in the interest of completeness but if I live long enough and if people are patient enough um, I, I hope to get everything out there in one form or another in in the in in the formats you're seeing now you know high quality scans you know cleaned up as best we can with full orchestral scores and uh, you know I may yet be able to pull it off I don't know.
1: That was music by John Marsalis for the 1914 film By the Sun's Rays on Lon Chaney Before the Thousand Faces Volume 2 which will be out August 2nd from Undercrank Productions. Links for that and other things we talked about will be in the show post at NitrateVille.com. Thanks to my guests, Richard Simonton and John Marsalis, And a big thanks to Ben Modell, a name you heard throughout this episode, because practically everything we talked about connects back to him some way. Theme music is by Kevin MacLeod. Be sure to subscribe at the podcast app of your choice. And if you can, leave us a rating and a review at Apple Podcasts. Thanks.